0: So us open our Bibles to Isaiah, chapter 27, verse 1, where Paul read for us earlier, just this one verse. I have entitled this message, The Fate of Lucifer. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 27, In that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile, That is in the sea. As we make our way through the book of Isaiah, uh, we've reached a section. I mentioned on Wednesday night that from chapters 13 to 23, we have 11 different nations, including Jerusalem, that would be brought under God's hand of judgment. That was 13 to 23. When we got to chapter 24, the whole chapter, dealing with the future judgment that we call the tribulation. The difference between is 13 through 23 has already happened, past tense. Chapter 24 is still in our future. We're watching the stage being set for that. Last week, our text was chapter 25, verse 1, and chapter 26, verse 1, and this week is chapter 27, verse 1, and remember that Well, 25 and 26 were songs of praise as a result of the Lord having victory over the enemies of Israel. And the natural response was gratitude and a song that was written to express, Lord, you delivered us from the hand of our enemies. And as a result, we have 25 and 26 being a song. Now, in chapter 27, it says, in that day. Let's just take that part of it. The question is, what day? In order to answer that, there are good Bible teachers, some I respect very much, and I happen to agree with them on this, that the end of chapter 26 should be the very first verse of chapter 27. Because when you get to uh, verse 2, it's a whole new train of thought where once again you're in the kingdom age. If you look at, if we back up just to chapter 26, verse 20, We are about to begin the great tribulation period, but God is going to speak to a certain group of people that he calls my people. I believe he's referring to you and me. So chapter 26, verse 20 says, Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself as it was for a little moment, seven years in this case, until the indignation is past." Now, when I gave names for the great tribulation, just like I'm going to give names for Lucifer this morning. We found that there were many different names, but one of them was the indignation. So he's asking this group of people to enter their chambers. And this is just going to be for a little while, for a moment, until the tribulation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place, heaven, to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. This is the reason, one of the six reasons for the great tribulation. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Now detail of what's going to happen at the end of the great tribulation period is the fate of Lucifer. So we have this now, the first verse of chapter 27. In that day, well what day? The day preceding the great tribulation, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay that reptile that is in the sea. We find in that day then, referring in verse 1 to the tribulation, it refers to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get past Psalm 2 without this being a main portion of what the Bible talks about. And in Psalm 2, it reads like this, the first five verses. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. For the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven shall laugh, and the Lord will hold them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath, And distress them with his deep displeasure. So Psalm 2 is not yet fulfilled, as it is not even yet fulfilled today. Isaiah 27, verse 1, Lucifer is called the twisted serpent and leviathan. But I want you to know, he has so many different names throughout the scripture. I'm going to ask you to bear with me, because he's mentioned so many times in so many different contexts that describe his nature, his personality, and just how evil this fallen angel is. And I'm gonna do it in alphabetical order. Here we go. Abaddon, Revelation 9. Accuser of the Brethren, Revelation 12. Adversary, 1 Peter. Angel of the bottomless pit, Revelation 9. The anointed covering cherub, Ezekiel 28. Antichrist, possessed, 1 John. Apollyon. Apollyon is a Greek name for Satan, meaning destroyer. Beast, Revelation 14. Belzebub verse John, the ruler of the demons. That's what Belsabob means. It's in the Gospels. Deceiver, Revelation 12. The devil, throughout scripture. The dragon. So that great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Enemy is the one who sold them in the field is the devil. That's the parable of the wheat and the tares. The evil one, John 17. The father of lies, John 8. The God of this age, Second Corinthians. King of the bottomless pit, Revelation 9. King of Tyre, Ezekiel 28. Leviathan, our text this morning. Isaiah 27, verse 1. The little horn of Daniel 8. Jesus called him the murderer, in John 8. Power of darkness, Colossians 1. Prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. The roaring, roaring lion, 1 Peter 5. Ruler of demons, Luke 11. Ruler of this world, John 12. Satan, Mark 1. That serpent of old, Revelation 12. Son of perdition, Second Thessalonians. The tempter, Matthew 4. A thief, John 10, and the wicked one, Ephesians chapter 6. As we look at it this morning, he's referred to as Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, and the twisted serpent. And, oh, we could spend a lot of time. I had to be very choosy this morning as we go through just a few verses that pertain to this fallen angel. Primarily, in the context that we're studying it, it has to do with his fate, how it happens, and that is primarily going to take place after the great tribulation period. But I want you to be aware of what he's up to during this seven-year period of time, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself, and I want to go back to the very first um, lie in the Bible and also the very first prophecy in the Bible. So we need to open our Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Verses we're all too familiar with. Very soon Satan will leave the spirit world that he has lived in for thousands of years. He will become visible to those who will be entering the great tribulation period. But we first are introduced to him here in chapter 3 of Genesis, where we read in verse 1, Now the serpent here is where Isaiah picks it up also as a twisted serpent. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So his first words are a direct challenge to the book that you're holding in your lap this morning. Hath God said, questioning the scriptures? And a woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden except for the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God said, you shall not eat it nor shall you not touch it lest you die. Well, what's interesting there is he didn't say anything about touching it. She sort of just added that. I don't know why she did, but she did. And then the serpent said to the woman, well, you're not gonna surely die. Here is the first lie in the Bible. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. The tactics of our adversary haven't really changed too much. You have in this one suggestion given to Eve, apart from her husband at this time, um, using the same old tactics, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Looks good. There's a lust of the eyes. It'll make you wise. There's a pride of life. And the lust of the flesh, it'll it'll taste good. It looks good. And he was enticing her. And as a result, you all know, that she was seduced, and um, she ate of it and gave also to Adam. Now the consequences of this rebellion from God's word we find addressed to um, the serpent in verse 14. The Lord first calls out Adam and says, it wasn't my fault, it was the woman. <laughs> That's the first case of passing the buck. And then she didn't want anything to do with it, so she says, it wasn't my fault, it was, it was a serpent that made me do it, so she passes the buck. And now the Lord deals with judgment on all three of them, but he begins with the twisted serpent. If you look at verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and on you shall eat its dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Well, first of all, women don't have The seed, that has to come from the male. And so it's a reference to he in the next verse, which is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ and his ultimate fate. So we read, he will bruise your head. It will be a mortal wound that will eventually uh, cause and seal his fate and you will bruise his heel. I believe a reference to the beating that Jesus took When he was taken to Calvary's cross. Yes, he was bruised. Um, Isaiah 52 said, marred more than any man. As they plucked his beard out and beat him mercilessly. And we have this very first prophecy where we're introduced to the the twisted serpent. As time goes on, he's in and out of history. And again, I had to be selective. But um, let's go up to the time of Moses. Moses got as far as Mount Nebo, and he says, you can't go in, Moses. That's Joshua's job now. And um, it says the Lord is the one that buried Moses. Interesting verse, though, in Jude 1, verse 9, it says, There was a confrontation between Michael the archangel and Lucifer while the Lord was doing this. I'll read it. It says, Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. I wonder why he wanted it. He did not bring a railing accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And um, this is always the case it should be with an adversary, uh, keeping the Lord Jesus Christ between you and your adversary. Somebody want to say amen to that? And even Michael um, the archangel uh, didn't get into a um, word match with me. just said, the Lord rebuke you. And that was the end of that. He's responsible. I, I think David's greatest sin was not Bathsheba or even the killing of Uriah. The result of that was two deaths, Uriah and the, and the baby child. A greater sin is when David numbered Israel before they died. There were 70,000 people that died because of David's sin. His whole life he had been writing the Psalms. His whole life he'd been telling people, let the Lord be your strength. Trust in him, not in men. I mean, that was David's life. And then when he gets old, what does he do? Well, interesting verse in 1 Chronicles. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Well, to me, when I read that, it gave a whole new light and uh, it wasn't just David looking to, how many men do we have so that we can defeat our enemy? No, the enemy knew his kink in the armor, that he was known for exhorting the people. Don't trust in me, don't trust in man, trust in the Lord, men will let you down. But put your trust in the Lord. So what does he do? He gets into it with his commander-in-chief. He says, David, don't do this, bad idea, back off. He says, but David's words prevailed And the census was taken and judgment came. The Lord gave him a choice. And he says, Lord, you pick. I don't want to fall into the hands of man. You pick, you decide. And the reason that we have the Temple Mount in in Jerusalem today, it was a a threshing floor of, of a Jebusite. And that's where the angel of the Lord, David actually saw the angel of the Lord beginning to strike Jerusalem itself. And uh, David pleaded, and then the Lord said, okay, enough. And he called him off. But that sin, that cost 70,000 people's lives, was actually provoked by the devil, according to Chronicles. Of course, the oldest book in the Bible is Job. And um, the idea that Lucifer is not in hell, but he's actually in heaven, as I speak this morning... Job 1.8 says, The Lord said to Satan, as he's looking at Job, Have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him on the whole earth. He's blameless, upright man, fears God, gets up every day, prays for his kids in case they've sinned. And so Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear you for nothing? Haven't you put a hedge around him and around his household? And all that he has, you're protecting him on every side, and I can't get at him. You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and you'll see what he's made of. And he says all that you're talking about is in your power and you can do it, but you can't take his life. So when it comes to the enemy, and you know, every, all of us have got this question. You've been asked and I've been asked. If, if God is a loving God, Fill in the blank If God is a loving God then why has my husband got cancer Or if God is a loving God why, why are these things happening in the world right now If God is a loving God Well the answer is God is a God to those who allow him to be the Lord of their lives But until that time um, There are certain parameters That the, the Lord will allow the enemy to go And no further and we find that as an example here in Job. You can go this far, Job, but no farther. And so we find that he has the ability to create weather systems. It was a windstorm, tornado, that took out and killed Job's kids. And, um, and that's uh, the warfare that took place in, in Job's life. And then you have the next 40 chapters trying to, he's trying to figure it out. And not till the end, last chapter, Is there any really insight into why the Lord allowed it? Well, that's all Old Testament. And of course, I'm skipping over much, but in the New Testament, right off the get go, we have as soon as Jesus begins his ministry, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's led into the wilderness in Mark 4, and uh, he was tempted there by the devil. And after the 40 days he was hungry and the tempter came, that's one of the names, and he said, if you're the son of God, then command these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, it is written. This is one of the most important verses that we can sort of do our little own little litmus test here this morning. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We think pretty well about what we're going to have for lunch today, Right? or what we're going to have for supper tonight. We plant it out, we bake it, we cook it, it smells good, and we care a lot about feeding this flesh pretty well. Come on, somebody give me an amen on that one, right? We do. And if I would ask you straight out what's more important, to feed the flesh or to feed the spirit, you could all give me the right answer, right? You say, that's a no-brainer. Of course, the spirit, because the spirit lasts forever, but not the flesh. And yet when it gets right down to it, and we give ourself, uh where David said, Lord, search me, check it out. Where do I put my priorities? Is it more upon what feeds the flesh, which Jesus says it just goes in and comes out? It's about as important as it is. And, and yet, here, when he was hungry, and he could have done it, he says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That's why we teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every word, that proceeds from the mouth of God. He passed the test. The last thing that we read about that encounter, it says, and the devil left him for a while. And so we can be victorious in a temptation, but don't think he's not going to come back. We move on to the Last Supper, and here's the one place, I believe there's two that are scriptural, where the devil literally enters and possesses Judas Iscariot. It's in Luke 22, verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas, whose surname was Iscariot, being the number of the 12. And when it, when it happened, the guys really didn't know what was going on, and Judas is up and gone. And he's about to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. But it was actually Satan who entered him. And as a result... Um, you know betraying the Lord who has never done anything but good even to Judas you know the place of honor at the last supper would have been at on the right hand who do you suppose was sitting there it was Judas and when he comes to betray him and kisses him he calls him friend wow uh, remember that um, Peter was sitting down at the other end of the table, and John was on this side, and Judas was here. And Peter's going like this and said, "You get one. Somebody's going to betray me tonight." And Pete wants to know who, so he's waving to John. John, ask the Lord, "Who is it?" And So he does, and he says, "Well, it's the one who's going to dip the sup and eat." No sooner had he said it than Judas reaches down, takes this up, and eats it. And John had to go, oh, my goodness, it's Judas. And um, I don't know if, 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 uh, if John was motioning back down to Peter. <laughs> Other <you know, laughs> side around. My point, it was, Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And how did he treat him? He practiced what he preaches. Bless those who bless you. Uh, do good to those who do evil against you. He knew it was coming down. And yet he honors him at the right hand and calls him friend when he's openly betrayed. And when they finally do him in, he says, Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. Because this goes back to Genesis 3. He was getting bruised by the serpent, buffeted by the serpent. And the very first prophecy in the Bible was being fulfilled as Jesus was being beaten. Paul warns us about him a little later on. I'm to have you turn to this one. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Mary was talking this morning about the false prophets and deceitful workers, how they can transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And they're out there today. They have the biggest churches. They tell you what you want to hear. They can't endure sound doctrine. One of the things about verse-by-verse teaching As you have to deal with every issue. Last week, we were talking about singing and the importance of song and how powerful it is. Well, this week, we're talking about our adversary because that's what's next in the list. But this warning of a false Christ, and and then he says in verse 14, and no wonder, for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. I'm curious about some of these apparitions of Mary that are taking place around the world. Now I know it's not Mary, so that just leaves uh, one other possibility, somebody who can transform himself into an angel. And so I don't doubt the sightings, I doubt who the person is that it's claiming to be. Peter also warns us in 1 Peter 5, he said be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's, he's looking for the weak ones, the ones that are having a tough week. Selling telling it's not it's not worth it. Go back to the old ways. Don't believe God's word. Don't press on. Don't persevere. And um, so this admonition from Peter uh, warns us that he's still around, And very much involved in the world politics in Hollywood. And um, now here we are. Brings us to our text. um, His fate. And Isaiah 27 verse 1 says it's going to be with the Lord's severe sword. When he deals finally with this one. That we call Leviathan or Lucifer. Lucifer. Uh, As we work our way through this, as we make our way and keep it in context, because the context of our study this morning is the end of the great tribulation period where one matter of business still has to be taken care of. And that is the dealing with this one who said that he would arise and he would be God. And he actually makes that attempt in 2 Thessalonians 2. But we need to go back To the book of Daniel to work our way through the tribulation itself. You cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. So let's turn back to Daniel. We started Daniel yesterday. We finished Ezekiel last week in men's prayer. And um, we started Daniel yesterday in men's prayer. We got through the first three uh, chapters. Guys, Consider it, you know, it really is a highlight of the week. And, um, man, great couple hours. It goes by like in 15 minutes, and it's just a total blessing. But as we got into Daniel, um, the beginning of the tribulation actually tells us where in Daniel 9, verse 27. There's still one seven-year period of time of the 480 that God promised to deal with Israel that has not yet been fulfilled. It's a seven-year period of time in Daniel 9, verse 27, that says, he, a reference to the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week. It's a peace treaty. I got an email from Elijah Abraham that said, urgent, please read immediately. And I did. And he says the possibility right now of Isaiah 17 could literally happen because we have military, he took me to a website that shows our intelligence uh, engaging with handing over Russian tanks to prop up uh, Assad and uh, much more that goes with it. Russia has openly called for a new Cold War. We're trying to backpedal it and say, we know we're not in a Cold War. Uh, we're going to be in more than a, cold war very very shortly and um, just a little sidetrack on that he's trying to stay ahead of the curve with it but where does the tribulation begin with a with a peace treaty he's going to be known as a man of peace and this lines up with revelation 6 verse 1 when the first seal was opened there was a rider on a white horse who went out to conquer and to conquer Beginning, you can start it right there. That clock, push the button, you got seven years. And it's such a detailed breakdown of the tribulation period into two sections. If you're in Daniel um, 8, let me draw your attention to verse um, uh, 23. Notice it says, in the latter times. So it's not in Daniel's time. In the latter times of their kingdom. We're talking about um, ten kings that will arise that will have something to do with this new world order that you hear so much about. In the latter times of their kingdom, when the transgressors has reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features this is a reference to the Antichrist He understands sinister schemes. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Now this means, Revelation 13, that the Antichrist gets his power from Lucifer. And here Daniel's talking about it ahead of time. He'll have power, but it won't be from his own. Somebody's going to give it to him. He will destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. And through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. I quoted it earlier in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? They think they're going to fight against God. He's going to rise against the prince of princes, the Lord Jesus Christ. But... He shall be broken and without hands. So even though all this is going to happen, we have this butt there, but he's not going to complete his task of uh, what he's wanting to do. Now, go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 24. And again, these dreams of Nebuchadnezzar are are being interpreted. I made mean, mention to the guys yesterday in men's prayer the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 is the same dream using different images in Daniel 7. In Daniel 2, it's a, a man, head of gold, chest of silver, and uh, it's, a, it's a, actually a statue. But in uh, 7, it's the, it takes the form of... Beasts and creatures, four of them. And now he's describing the fourth beast, which is yet to come. Let me just run through this quickly. Daniel is so important. I was telling the guys, when the very first thing we said after we got to the reading, you know, people spend so much time researching and, and looking into the stock market and their 401ks and planning, and we think of all the time and energy put into it. I said, do you realize that you have more inside information here than anywhere, and this is the most valuable piece of information that you could possibly ever imagine. Why? Because you know how the market is going to close at the end of the day, because the Bible lays it out. And uh, what's not mentioned in these countries is Egypt and Assyria. And the reason being is because they pick it up with Babylon because that's where Daniel is. He was there the whole 70 years. So beginning with Babylon... It goes on to the Medo-Persians, goes on to Alexander the Great with the Greek Empire, goes on to the Roman Empire, which was the last one to have world dominance. And then you have a gap since Rome was here, and Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, and there hasn't been one since then. Some have tried, Mussolini tried, Hitler tried, but none have been successful. But the Bible predicts there will be one who will be. And our world, my friends, is ripe. As we decline in our power, and people are asking anybody to step up to the plate and see if they can somehow bring an end to the carnage of the 250,000 that have either died or, or been um, homes have been destroyed. Uh, it's the biggest humanitarian crisis since World War II. It's happening right now. And all we get to hear about is uh, Hillary and um, Donald, right? But what's really going on, it's it's devastating, but it's the stage being set. So, explanation of uh, the Antichrist and, and how he comes to power. It says in Revelation 6, he goes out to conquer and to conquer. Well, the fourth beast, verse 23 of chapter 7, a fourth kingdom on the earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, grapple it and break it in pieces. The 10 horns are 10 kings. Now this is important because when we get to Revelation, we need to have that information. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He'll be different from the first ones and he's gonna subdue three of them. So seven will go along with them. He'll have to take care of three of them by himself. And he will speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws, and then the saints will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a times. This is a reference to the Antichrist in two stages. The first stage, he goes out conquering and brings a temporary peace treaty that's going to be broken in the middle. And this where it says times, times, and half a times here. It says the saints will be given over to him. This is a reference in Revelation when he has the ability to actually take the life of Moses and Elijah. We've already been there for the first three and a half years, along with 144,000 supernaturally protected by God And they're preaching the gospel. But we have sort of a gap here between the verse 25, where he's implementing new changes, new world order, to the time where now he's given to uh, come against the saints. And that's when the ultimatum is given. Take the mark and live, or don't and die. And times, times, and half a times is simply another way of saying three and a half years. Time singular, one year. Times plural, two, two plus one is three. Half a time, three and a half years. And that's the second part of the great tribulation period. Let's make our way now because Daniel ties directly into this. Let me take you to the middle of the tribulation. You need to turn to Revelation chapter 12. While you're turning, let me just see if I can paint this picture for you because you've got several, about three main events that happened during the first three and a half years of, of the tribulation. Number one, chapter six, verse one. The Antichrist is actually revealed. He's a rider on a white horse. White usually means a good guy, Right? So he comes with a peace treaty. He's got the white hat on. And um, some are very, very confused. They actually think the rider on the white horse is Jesus because the Lord returns on a white horse. But no, it's a reference to the Antichrist. So he comes out with this peace treaty. Israel will rebuild its temple. Now, while that's going on, the church, remember Isaiah 26, come, my people, Enter your chambers, just for a little while, until the indignation is over. Then the Lord will come from his place, and he will deal with the inhabitants of the earth. And then our text, verse 1 of chapter 27, deals just with one individual, and that is Lucifer. He's different. Then he should never be compared with, well, here's Our father in heaven and here's the devil. Or the devil and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. Where Lucifer can only be in one place at one time. And um, he's already been defeated on the cross. So he's playing out his plan and he's only got one more card to play. So what's happening is this first three and a half years you have the two witnesses, and it tells us in Revelation uh, 12 that the length of their time, or 11, chapter 11, of uh, their witness is for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. So Moses and Elijah um, have two and a, uh, three and a half years to do their ministry. The Antichrist is conquering and conquering, And then at the same time, what we have going on is God begins to judge planet Earth. And all that is happening up to the first three and a half years. Now, chapter 12, verse 7, tells us, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Here we have Lucifer, and Joby was in heaven. And he evidently has access to that realm. But now, in the middle of the three and a half years, he's cast to the earth. Well, something else happens at exactly the same time that he's being cast down. If you look at chapter 13, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Another major event happens. Um... And verse 1 is going to be important because it ties into Isaiah 27, verse 1. John says, then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Well, what does Isaiah 27, 1 say? I'm going to go back and read it for you. It says, that Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay that reptile that is in the sea. It ties right in. And so he sees this beast rising out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his head blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, like a bear, the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now remember I said in Daniel 7 that the the beast was actually compared to the Antichrist by four different animals. And here they are. And the only thing that's interesting about this is the order is switched. When you read it from Daniel, it's in one order, but when you read it in Revelation, it's switched around. I don't know what significance that is. Um, But anyway, what what I want to point out here, we read also in Daniel that he will have power and authority, but not by himself. So now we read... Uh, and I saw one of his heads as had it had been mortally wounded, and the deadly wound was healed. I just want you to think for a second. Everybody knows what you were doing. I do. I was in sixth grade when JFK was shot. Walter Cronkite gets up, announces the news, begins to weep. And um, imagine, after that pronouncement, and he's being flown back to Washington, D.C., with LBJ and the plane being sworn in. And all of a sudden, he just wakes up. Everything's fine. Oh, his head was definitely wounded, but all of a sudden, he comes back to life. Oh, you have the world's attention, don't you think? Well, this is exactly what's going to happen. You have the world leader being taken out. He had a fatal head wound, and all the world marveled and followed the beast And then verse four, they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. So they worshipped the dragon. Let's just stop here for a second. Come on, worship the dragon. demon. Actually, they're going to actually be worshipping, saying, come on, Dwight, give me a break. Why not? We're doing it right now. Even, he even has his own TV show. You know that? This is uh, the producers of the new A&E show on Antichrist. People feel like these are the end times. This is an article by Mark Judge, January seventh, two 2016. This March, A&E will premiere Damien, a drama about the Antichrist. It's based on the 1977 film The Omen and is one of three new shows that depict the devil and demonic possession. The others are Lucifer and the outcast on Cinemax. Lucifer is on Fox. I couldn't believe it. So I said, I'm going to watch this thing. And here he is, cool, calm, and collective, looking into your head, knowing exactly what's going on, uh, finding your little crink in the armor, and being very suggestive of, hey, man, go for it. I can see what you're into. And he's just laid out there as this good-looking guy that uh, has all this magnetism. And uh, he's got his own show. This is all called preconditioning. And uh, he's just laying it out there, exactly what his intentions are. Well, the fate of... uh, Let's read on just a little bit farther. He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Again, another way of saying three and a half years. What we have here, I believe what happens, I won't be dogmatic about it because you have to think it through because things have to happen. If the devil entered Judas Iscariot, which the Bible clearly teaches, I don't think he was in Judas Iscariot when Judas Iscariot hung himself. I think he came out. Now here, the Antichrist is killed, and he comes back to life. But I think at this point, Lucifer inhabits him during this period of time. And um, I don't uh, there's a problem with what I just said, and I'll get to it when we get to the judgment of these two. Verse six, that he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. Well, he wasn't doing that before, but he is now. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the land slain from the foundation of the world. Again, yesterday in men's prayer, this this is exactly what happens in Daniel chapter three. Um, either you bow down and worship, or you die. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow, they stick out like a sore thumb. And so they, they're cast into this fire that's heated up seven times hotter. I believe it's a perfect Old Testament picture for a New Testament teaching of, of those that Go through the fire and the the tribulation period. All right, I have to move ahead because my time's running away. What is the fate? Let's turn to chapter 19 of both the beast and the false prophet. Here we have the second coming and we pick it up in verse 19. The Lord comes back on his horse, on a white horse, king of king and lords of lords, and with one word destroys those who gather against him. And then John says in verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him who was on the horse and against his army. Again, Psalm 2. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. That is the fate of the Antichrist. Now, I mentioned earlier, I believe that the Antichrist is literally possessed by Lucifer himself. But obviously he is not a part of this because there's a different judgment for Lucifer. For that, we need to read chapter 20, verse 1. And it says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and he set a seal on him so that he could not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And my question is why? (laughs) Isn't it yours? Why? Why not just throw him in with the other two bad guys and be done with it? Well, there's a reason for it. He will be used by God one more time. In Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10, after being incarcerated for a 1,000 years, And we ask this question, why, Lord, would you do that? And here's your answer. Because God will not force you or me to spend eternity with him if you don't want to. Now imagine being born 500 years into the kingdom age. And you're 500 years old when the end of the millennium has has come. But you were forced As the Bible says, he's going to rule and reign with the rod of righteousness, right? But now we're getting ready to enter eternity, forever and ever. And the Lord will allow an alternative to himself in case somebody really doesn't want to go. And this this is mind-boggling to me and it shows a couple things that we definitely have a free will to choose. And If you're going to enter eternity, it's going to be of your own free will, not because you were born into the kingdom age. By the way, just let mind wander just a little bit. I wonder what it's like to never have to wake up again to eight below. Wouldn't that be great? Go camping, no mosquitoes. You get your baby roses and there's no thorns on them on Valentine's Day. All that good stuff. The perfect environment, longevity of life. People still will sin. And you have the perfect ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ruling over you. And yet, when given a choice, we read in verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together, whose numbers as the sand of the sea. What? Yeah. Thousands and thousands and thousands. Exercising their free will to rebel against the Lord and believe the devil once again. The Lord allows this to happen because it provides another choice, which is extremely important. It's Valentine's Day. And you love, are you you forced to love your wife? No. Um, Are you forced to buy chocolates and flowers? Yes. (laughs) Do you do it because you love her? Yes. Okay, but it's our free will. Now, if it's all about a love relationship with our creator and he senses that you really don't love him, he'll give you that choice. This, to me, is is a slam dunk case for people who say I'm just a victim of my the way I was brought up. I was brought up on the wrong side of town, poor side of the tracks. And that's the reason I... Uh, I am the way I am. It's not my fault. It's not your fault, you're fat. <laughs> Sorry, that just slipped out. <laughs> Once and for all, this argument will be ended. Because you have the perfect ruler, you have the perfect environment, but when given a choice, what, what do many people do? Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things, Desperately wicked, who can know it? Paul said, in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And when you can open it up and you can see it and people choose, the Lord makes short order of it. He causes fire to come down from heaven. He says, all right, you've made your choice. Just like Korah in the rebellion with Moses. The earth opened up, that problem was taken away. His final fate, Revelation 20, verse 10 now that he's used him for the last time as an instrument and the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever daniel 4:244 4, 4, 4 says in the days of these kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom will not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it will stand forever. Not just a thousand years. We're talking eternity now. And heaven. And in this place, I'll end it on this note. And God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. No more death. No more crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things have passed away. The great thing about God's word is he lays it out. He tells you exactly what's going to happen. It's more sure than anything that we have planned for today. This has to come to pass exactly this way. Are there dark days ahead? Absolutely. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Absolutely. Amen? Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for your word as we make our way through the scriptures. We thank you that you deal with every issue, every subject, every matter. It's practical and you tell us not to be ignorant of his devices, that he's a force, that we need to keep you between us. Lord, I pray for your word this morning that we'll leave here better equipped and especially discerning as we consider Mary's update with people today living in a time when they can't endure a solid Bible study, a sound one, because it doesn't feel good or feel right. But we know it's true, and we thank you for that, Lord. So bless your people as we go out today. In Jesus' name, amen.